1: Hey listeners, it's Mishi. Last week we released our 50th wartime diary. This week is Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaTzmaut. And as a way of marking this milestone, and these dates, Yochai Tal and I will have a series of onstage conversations in New York and Cleveland. We'll discuss the process of creating wartime diaries, talk about some of the challenges we've encountered, the dilemmas we've had, the insights we've gained, So if you want to hear what covering the evolving story of this war has been like for us, we'd love to see you at one of our events. All the details are on our site, IsraelStory.org. And meanwhile, wishing us all calm and peaceful days ahead. Setting up an interview with Dvora Sason, that's not actually her real name, reminded me of planning a covert military operation. There was a very specific window of opportunity. There were places we had to cautiously avoid, and there was, of course, a plausible cover story. We're not using your name here, and we're avoiding all kinds of identifying details and even changing your voice. Why are we doing all of this?
2: Um, I need to protect myself and my family. I feel uncomfortable if people would know would know the truth, if people would know who I am. I asked
1: her what would be so terrible about that.
2: People might look at me differently, um, might... Uh, I don't know, perhaps be disappointed, feel the need to maybe try to change or fix me.
1: Very few people know Dvora's secret, the one she's so afraid to tell.
2: Some of the members of my family know. More don't.
1: And even that's a new development. Dvora has a large family, many kids, a bunch of grandkids— Until very recently, none of them knew a thing.
2: It's difficult. I wish it wasn't so difficult, but it really is.
1: Now, I'm not sure what you're imagining right now. But if I had to guess, I'd say you're probably not even close. You see, Dvora's dark secret?
2: So basically that I...
1: Brace yourself?
2: I no longer observe.
1: That's right. Dvora is no longer religious.
2: It's not that I've, like, given up on Judaism? Um I haven't. I just don't want to keep the rules and and I don't.
1: So this might not seem all that dramatic to you. It didn't to me either at first. But I don't want to trivialize it because well for Dvora it's the central theme of her life. And putting myself in her shoes, I can totally understand why.
2: It's crazy as it sounds for somebody who's not religious. Like, why is that even a secret? Why does anybody even care? But people do care.
1: Hey, I'm Mishy Harmon, and this is Israel Story. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX and is produced together with Tablet Magazine. So most of you probably remember or at least have heard R.E.M.'s 1991 hit, Losing My Religion. It reached number four on the U.S. billboard and became one of the group's most famous tracks. And in that song, Michael Stipe, R.E.M.'s frontman, has some lines that I'm pretty sure would resonate with Dvorah. That's me in the corner, he sings. That's me in the spotlight, losing my religion, trying to keep up with you. And I don't know if I can do it. Oh, no, I've, I've said too much. I haven't said enough. In our episode today... Losing my religion, we're going to meet two Israeli couples who come from completely different backgrounds and circumstances, but ended up facing similar challenges. Challenges which, you'll see, they approached and solved in very different manners. Back to Dvorah. Act 1, get off this ride. When you think of your story, where does it begin?
2: I would say it begins when I was a child. I think that um, the way I grew up, the way I was educated, everything brought me to this place.
1: Voha was born into a religious community outside of New York City. Her family was...
2: Somewhere between modern Orthodox and yeshivish. I wouldn't say it was super strict, as super strict religious families go, but strict enough for me. We had restrictions on what we could wear and who we could talk to.
1: She was sent, of course, to a religious school for girls.
2: It was a don't-ask-questions kind of a school.
1: But from a very young age, Dvora was full of doubts.
2: I had questions. I wanted to know, well, why? Why are we doing this?
1: Even though her parents were relatively open-minded, she didn't feel she could share her existential thoughts with them.
2: I don't know. I felt like they just would not understand. I don't know why I felt that.
1: And it wasn't that she didn't try—
2: I do remember one time bringing up the, the God question to my parents, and it just didn't go well. They didn't know what to do with it, didn't really have the tools to give me the right answers or to give me answers. So eventually I ended up with no answers.
1: The lack of any guidance of any outlet to explore her questions led Dvorah to a real crisis.
2: I lost my faith, and I was quite young. I mean, I was still in grade school. It was a very lonely and difficult uh, time for me.
1: But since she wasn't much of a troublemaker, and didn't want to rock the boat, she just remained silent.
2: I always thought I was going to get in trouble. I always expected to get in trouble, and I had this very strong self-preservation thing that kicked in, and um, I protected myself probably much too carefully.
1: So with all that, you might expect to hear that just as soon as she left her parents' house, Dvora also left the religious world. But, well, not quite. Instead, she started living a double life. Outwardly orthodox. And inwardly, anything but.
2: And I made myself comfortable with that by saying... Um, protecting them.
1: Them being her parents in this case, but really more generally the world in which she had grown up. Everyone seemingly just preferred not to know.
2: I mean, that's true. But at the same time, I do think it is somewhat of a cowardly way to be that I, you know, had to do things always secretly.
1: When she was 18, Dvorah went off to college and started dating.
2: Religious, not religious. It wasn't important to me. It was just Oh, is he cute, and do I like him? You know, and that was really the defining factor for me.
1: But it was important that they be Jewish.
2: I thought about it at one point. I thought to myself, "What if would I go out with a guy who wasn't Jewish? I probably would have. I probably did."
1: But true to herself and to her fear of disappointing her parents or causing a major stir in the community, Dvorah ended up with Mister Wright.
2: I married the kind of person that I was expected to marry. So religious and um, what my parents wanted, they were thrilled.
1: She was 19.
2: We got married pretty quickly um, in a very orthodox, religious, kind of yeshivish sort of way. And, you know, we were going to be this nice religious couple, having nice religious kids in a nice religious community.
1: I asked her what she was thinking standing underneath the chuppah. I mean, she already knew that this wasn't her, that this wasn't the life she wanted.
2: I kind of got swept into the whole dating and we're getting married and it's just happening so fast that I don't have time to breathe. And there were those thoughts of, what the hell am I doing? And there was a part of me that was saying, get off this ride now. But I didn't know how. It it was like being caught in a tide. You're just in it and you just keep swimming because... That's the only alternative, and that's the only alternative I felt at the time.
1: Dvora told me it all just happened too quickly, and she felt stuck.
2: But it was also a fun stuck, because it was, you know, a wedding, and it's exciting, and it's fun, and it's starting a new life, and I'm going to get to wear all these cool wigs, and how fun is that? Not fun, but it looked fun before I started wearing them. Um, So I got caught into it. All my friends were in the same boat, so and everyone was happy about being in that boat, so I could be happy too. And that was what we were for um, a number of years.
1: Dvorah and her husband started having kids, seven of them actually. And things were relatively simple. After all, the terms of their marriage and the commitment they had made to each other were very clear.
2: For him, it was... Very important to have a religious spouse and live a religious life, and you know we became more religious and more strict about things. And as part of that process, we decided that we would make Aliyah, and uh, and we did.
1: In the early 2000s, the Voa and her family packed up and left New York.
2: We were coming to Aliyah because we were religious, because it was something that we believed in as a mitzvah, something that, you know, as a Jew we're supposed to do. We're supposed to live in Israel, and therefore we are.
1: They moved into a small West Bank settlement in the Judean hills, just south of Jerusalem and Bethlehem.
2: We didn't really um, understand Zionism. I couldn't have even like defined it for you at the time. and. We didn't really have any any understanding at all about um, the West Bank, Green Line, Eretz Israel, Israel, you know, we're going to move to a place that we like.
1: One of the most appealing attributes of their new community was just how homogenous it was.
2: We wanted to be in a place where it was religious, where it was very clear that it was religious. I was, you know, in that religious mode at that stage of my life. So I was hoping that I was going to stick with it, I guess.
1: Dvorah thought that if only she surrounded herself with committed religious neighbors, they'd somehow rub off on her and help remove her blasphemous qualms.
2: I was actually in the mindset of like, okay, you know what, this is the right thing, this is right, and this is what I'm going to do, and I'm committed to it. And I stuck with it for a while, but it just didn't it just didn't last.
1: No matter how far she ventured or where she lived, those doubts that had been sizzling inside of her since she was a little girl, they never really went away.
2: I was going up and down religiously the whole time and um, always to myself and not saying anything and and not being open and honest because I was afraid because I would would be disapproved. I would, you know, get in trouble even though I was married and an adult.
1: What did it feel like not being able to share these doubts that you were having?
2: Lonely. It's very lonely.
1: As you can imagine, this all made for a very complicated daily existence.
2: I had decided that I no longer wanted to be religious while I was still being religious. I was saying, I don't want to keep Shabbos anymore, but I was keeping Shabbos.
1: With time, that started to change. It began with small stuff, turning on and off lights on Shabbat when no one was looking, sneaking a peek at her (coughs) cell... The pro move, in case you were wondering, is taking the phone into the bathroom.
2: You know that no one's going to walk in on you. It's the safest place. (laughs) I mean, where else could you go? You can't go into the closet. Someone's going to open the closet door, but the bathroom you can lock and you can be in there for a while and whatever. (laughs) So.
1: But still, in a household full of observant people, in an orthodox West Bank settlement, even that's a big risk.
2: Yeah, I take some chances, you know, and, and I noticed that I'm taking more and more chances.
1: What's more, Dvora felt conflicted about these transgressions. After all, she loves Shabbat.
2: I want Shabbat in my house. I think that it's wonderful. I think it's great for family. And I would never want to lose that.
1: So the end result of all this was a growing feeling of guilt and anxiety. Dvora's lies were occupying more and more of her mental energy.
2: I mean it was fear you know I would check my phone and it was like I'd be like you know listening to every little footstep or whatever like if the world would like you know come crashing to a halt if I was found out to be like you know sending a text
1: and this whole time while all of this is going on your husband is completely oblivious to it
2: uh yeah yeah basically he didn't know didn't um want to know I I did not feel safe and comfortable sharing those those feelings and I and I didn't I knew he'd be upset, and I knew he'd be angry, and that he wouldn't take it well. But, you know, so what? I could have, like, manned up about it and, and just been honest. Um, and I, I just kept it all to myself. For years. Years. Many years.
1: It wasn't just her husband and her kids that Dvorah was deceiving slash hiding from. It was everyone literally everyone she knew.
2: Yeah, I would definitely think that anybody looking at us from the outside would see just a nice, happy religious family and would be really pretty surprised to find out what the reality is.
1: Dvoa realized that this couldn't go on much longer, that she couldn't go on like this much longer. There was no external event that broke her, no dramatic moment or argument that pushed her over the top. The mounting pressure, the hiding, the constant angst about what others would say if they found out, that's what made her come clean. After so many lonely years, she couldn't contain it anymore. And a couple of months ago, she finally told her husband.
2: I'd had it with um, feeling nervous, like I was going to get caught, you know? I just wanted to not have that stress and that tension.
1: That conversation, the one she'd been dreading for decades... Didn't go well.
2: It was like that, you know, he was finding out that that I was sleeping with someone. It was that severe. He was angry, um, blamed me, thought that it was my fault, that I should have done something about it. Tried finding a way to prevent this from happening. And yeah, I don't know if he's going to get over it.
1: Dvorah told me that since the talk, she and her husband barely communicate they're more like roommates, she said, who live in the same house and have to discuss logistics. It's all still unfolding, and that's the reason she's so careful about not revealing herself. Where do things stand now?
2: Um. So I'm not sure how much I should say right now, because he doesn't even know where they stand. It doesn't stand in a very good place right now. I, 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 don't, um, I don't know that we'll be able to get over it. Honestly.
1: And how does that make you feel?
2: Um it just is.
1: This story came with a lot of trust and a lot of responsibility. After years of silence, Devoa decided to share her innermost thoughts with us, total strangers, before she did so with her own partner, with her own children. I've often wondered whether this was an act of liberation, of defiance against her husband, her marriage, her community, or really, against herself.
2: At some point, when it all comes out and people are aware of my reality, because I'm sure that's going to happen, um, what do I want to be? Where do I want to be? Like, who do I want to be? and that's a process too and something that I'm still thinking about
1: so where do you hope to see yourself say in a year from now or five years from now
2: being um, honest with myself and the world around me I don't know if I will be I'd like to hope that I'll be able to find the courage to, to be to be who I am inside even if that means that I'm changing all the time because I'm okay with that
3: If I were to go away, will you follow me till the end of the earth? To show me what your love is worth, or would you go and buy a car? Shrug your shoulders, say that you are. She didn't love me anyway, if she had she would have stayed.
1: I have to tell you, of all the episodes we've done thus far, this one was probably the most challenging in terms of getting people to talk on tape. It turns out that losing your faith while being part of a religious family is one of the most intimate topics we've dealt with. We posted all over, sent out messages, asked everyone we knew. But many of the most promising leads we got came in hushed voices. Yeah, people would tell us. I know a guy who has a cousin who's married to a woman who suddenly became secular. It was as if we were infiltrating an underground network. And actually, we discovered that that isn't that far from the truth. We found a whole bunch of secret Facebook groups devoted to couples in which one person had left the fold. These groups sort of serve as safe spaces where people can discuss the trials of their daily lives. We found the heroes of our next story, whose names we also changed, through one of those online forums. Like many other couples, they too hesitated to talk to us. But with my dogged persistence and Maya Kosovil's never-failing charm, they were somehow convinced. Act two, Fifty Fifty Shades of Black.
4: This story begins like any other ultra-Orthodox date. It's a Friday morning, and we're in the bustling lobby of a Jerusalem hotel.
1: A 21-year-old baby-faced yeshiva boy in a dapper black suit is awkwardly waiting around. This is about to be his first date with a girl.
4: A few streets away, an elegant young woman is casually walking towards the hotel. She's in no rush. She knows it's always a good idea to make the guy wait.
5: He wasn't my first boy. I went out with a lot of boys before. A lot? 18.
1: Our guy, number 19, is called Yaakov. Her
4: name is Batya.
1: Yaakov had just begun to hear Shiduchim to be set up on blind dates by a matchmaker. And the head of his yeshiva made sure he knew how to behave.
6: My yeshiva said, you talk in these meetings only about your family, her family, and the goals of life. That's all. Not to talk about your private things on your thoughts.
5: So he was waiting. I walked in. He said, hi, are you Batya? I said, yes. He said, how are you? And I said, fine. And then we said, oh, we talked. His family, my family, and I said, wow, this is boring. I don't think he's for me. He looks like a little boy, and he is younger than me. I don't think he's for me.
4: But still, there was something about Yaakov that persuaded Batya not to call it quits just yet. And instead, she notified the matchmaker that she agreed to go on a second date. I thought it might have been his kind eyes or some feeling of spiritual connection. But Batya quickly corrected me.
5: It's based mostly on logic. And you're logically trying to see if this person is going to be the one that you can build a house with, a family. We're not looking for real attraction, but we're looking for something there.
1: Yaakov was somewhat less calculated
6: about it all. I felt she's a nice uh, and pretty lady. My Rosh Hashiva said, you can marry her, yeah, no problem.
4: The second date, they both agreed, went well. And on Monday evening, they reconvened in the lobby for a third crucial date.
5: The third date is like a turning point. And then you, you, you can start talking about maybe children or goals, like specific goals.
1: Yaakov told her that he hoped to continue his studies at the Koilel and to become, God willing, the head of the yeshiva one day.
4: This all sounded like music to Batya's ears, just what she always dreamt
5: of. I saw that I really relate to him. When he talks about learning, he's excited, he likes his life. And I felt that um, the communication is perfect.
4: Date number four, you'll notice a pattern, took place the very next day they were already
1: becoming regulars in the hotel lobby. Throughout the date, Yakov was clearly nervous. Finally, he mustered up enough courage, looked Batya straight in the eye and asked, what do you think about our future? This was, in essence, his way of popping the question.
5: But I felt, one minute, isn't this too fast? And I said, I don't know, I'm not sure.
4: Batya got cold feet. She realized that they didn't really know each other and that these dates could not go on forever. She tossed and turned all night, trying to imagine what life would look like with him or without him. Come morning, she called the matchmaker and delivered the verdict. Yes, she was up for a fifth date.
1: Yaakov showed up in the hotel lobby Totally confused.
6: Because I don't know what you want, if you want to marry it or not. But uh, accidentally, I called her my wife.
5: So I said, Did you just call me your wife? And he said,
6: Yes. And she told me, If you want to, you need to ask. <laughs> so this time, he did, flat out.
4: And she said, Yes.
1: It was a Thursday night. Just a week earlier, they were total strangers. They literally did not know each other. And now? Now they were engaged.
6: After we engaged, I started to feel very strong emotions to Batya.
4: They told their families the good news.
1: The fathers
6: discussed the tnoim,
1: the terms...
4: And finally, everyone raised a joyous l'chaim.
5: In this time, it's a time where you're not married, but you're trying to build a relationship. So it's very important to keep strict rules because you don't want to to become friends. You're not allowed to touch yet. You're not allowed to to be alone yet. So uh, we had all kinds of uh, excuses why we should see each other more. Two months later,
4: Their excruciating wait was over.
5: After the chuppah, you walk into
3: Chederi And that's a time
5: where you're there together, alone, and you're allowed to touch each other. That's the first time you touch each other. It's very exciting. It's so... It's bursting out of you. So you're very It's a very special time.
6: Yeah. It's uh, it's like a dream.
4: After the wedding, they moved in together. Their life felt like something out of a romantic movie.
5: I thought I'm going to have the most Perfect life. This is what I was dreaming about. We were very much in love.
4: They lived in a small, sheltered community outside of Jerusalem.
5: It's very religious. Everybody's quite the same. But I always felt special. I have something that nobody has. My husband is something special. He learns. He loves it.
1: Yaakov spent his days at the koilil, debating the finer points of old Talmudic texts.
4: Meanwhile, Batya, the household sole provider, would go to work.
1: And at night, when they both got home from their respective occupations, they'd sit down and talk about the future.
5: He said, I want 12 children, and I want to have a baby as soon as possible. And I said, let's wait. But I didn't do anything to wait, because there was no reason to wait. I'm married. There's a mitzvah to have children, at least two, a boy a girl. A month later, I was pregnant. And uh, ten months later, we had a baby, a boy. And then a year and a half later, another girl. Two years later, another girl.
6: Before
1: too long, their small apartment was filled with the sound of little children running around and melodic Shabbat songs.
4: They were on a roll and became kind of a model couple.
5: Boys that were thinking of getting married would say, you're the role model. And we would say, it's okay, we fight too. No, this is a role model. You have a happy house, you have a a loving uh, communication, Respecting communication, he helps a lot. As a yeshivay, he helped very much. Always, he cooks, he cleans, he bakes.
1: These were, as Batya calls them,
5: the five
1: good years.
5: And that's uh, where where the story turns.
1: Gradually, new thoughts popped into Yaakov's mind. He felt that the koilel was no longer as stimulating as it had once been, that he wasn't advancing, that he was bored. So he did something pretty unusual for Yeshiva Buchar.
6: I started to learn in uh, Open University. I always want to be a doctor.
1: He purchased some biology books and would stay up late at night studying.
6: I still learn in koilel, but I took uh, one course in semester.
4: Batya didn't really object.
5: Whatever is good for him is good for me. This is what he likes. I'm fine with everything he does.
4: Everything he does, that is, as long as the basic framework stayed the
1: same. But that's not what happened. Yaakov spent more and more of his time poring over his textbooks, and his nightly sessions started spilling into the day. Before long, he stopped attending the Koilil altogether.
5: Batya wasn't pleased. We missed something here. He was so uh, special, the way he learned. I felt a tinge of disappointment at that point. It wasn't what I dreamt about, but still, it was okay. I didn't nudge him.
1: Yaakov began to withdraw and reevaluate his core beliefs.
6: I slowly thought again about the existence of God, the truth of the uh, Bible. Uh, and all of this. Slowly I felt not connected. I felt not belongs to this world, to Haredi world. After half a year I stopped to believe. I think that is all all fiction.
3: (laughs) But
4: (laughs) Batya. She didn't really know about any of these shockwaves rocking Yaakov's life.
6: I didn't dare to, to tell my wife. It has big impact on our life. It's changing all the ideas of the way we live, and especially we live in a close community of Haredim. You can't decide one day, I'm not religious. It's not like this. And I was very afraid how, how she get it, how she will react.
5: His
4: silence didn't fool her.
5: I felt that he wasn't sharing his life with me. I, of course I felt it. After a very good communication, a very good marriage, you feel when a person doesn't want to share. He comes home, he turns on the computer, let's watch a movie, which means let's not talk. So I keep asking him, what's happening? So he says, no, nothing's happening.
1: In the rare instances in which Yaakov did try to broach the topic, he never said anything concrete. It was more like he was testing the waters with all kinds of imaginative hypotheticals.
5: I didn't didn't understand he's trying to tell me something, so I would think it was just a conversation. What do you think about non-religious people? And I don't like it.
6: She don't like the secular people, the way they live, so I'm more afraid to tell her that I'm like this. So I was very confused. I feel like uh, schizophrenia, like uh, double life, yeah.
1: At home, under Batya's watchful gaze, Yakov was still totally religious, adorning the ultra-Orthodox uniform, praying, the whole deal.
6: But just
1: as soon as he left their town...
6: I act like a secular man. It's very hard. It's hard to live that that way. Uh.
4: It wasn't easy for Batya either. The rift between them grew and grew, and even if she didn't fully grasp the extent of it, she could sense that they were surrounded by secrets, lies, and charades.
5: I've got something very naive about myself saying, until someone doesn't tell me something, it's not there.
4: They tried to cling on to their daily routine, to focus on the kids. By now, they had five. But Batya felt that Yaakov was slipping away.
5: I was really angry at him. I felt betrayed. What's happening? I don't know who he is. So at that point I said, okay, we're going downhill as a couple. Let's go to marriage counseling.
1: Yaakov reluctantly agreed.
4: And Batya found a woman who worked in their community.
5: She put a mirror to my face and said, you know what's happening. This is the truth. He's not religious at all.
4: Now that it was said out loud, Batia could no longer ignore the truth.
5: For me, it was very clear that if he is non-religious, I can't live with him. It's not possible. So I remember crying and talking to him and saying, so what are we going to do together and how, how can we lead a life like this? What connects us? What brings us together? I really didn't know what, what we have that's more than religion.
1: Yaakov shared her concerns. He didn't feel
6: any connection to Judaism. And
1: he knew what that meant.
6: It can destroy our marriage.
1: It was
4: as if they were standing on opposite sides of a precipice.
5: I said, oh no. That's the end, right? What are we going to do? So I said, okay, listen, I'm not going to decide anything. I'll go ask a rabbi. I'll see. Maybe I don't know the truth. Maybe... Religion doesn't see a problem with a couple like this.
4: So Batya started calling on rabbis and Rabbitsons. They all seemed horrified by the situation, but refused to give her clear answers. Instead, they just mumbled something like,
5: Oh no, this is terrible. What are you going to do together? What is he going to teach your children? How are you going to bring up children with him? It's a terrible example. There's no way you could do this, but, but I don't want to tell you what to do. So don't ask me. So that's where I was. I was stuck.
4: As a last resort, she approached a slightly more progressive rabbi.
5: He's not black and white. He understands gray, too. I felt that I can relate to, his, to the way of his thinking. She showed up in his office and said, Hello, I am Batya. My husband is not religious, doesn't fronte doesn't daven. doesn't keep Shabbos. I wanted to know if there's a problem to stay married. And he said... So how many children do you have? And I said five, and he said, wow, why are you telling me only the bad things? Tell me the happy things too.
4: So Batya told him all about Yaakov. She mentioned what a devoted father he is, how he helps around the house, how he cooks and cleans.
5: She talked about the beautiful
4: friendship they once shared.
1: The rabbi listened carefully and then asked,
5: Does he expect you to do forbidden things that are not allowed halachically from the Torah? And I said, no, he respects the way I am. Does he want the kids to do things like that? I said, no. So he said, so it's okay. And that's where I started crying. I was so relieved. That's where I felt, wow, I want this. I want this relationship to go on. I want it to be as strong as it was. I was crying, I was crying, I was walking. I didn't know what to do with myself, I was relieved.
4: That rabbinic approval was just the first step. Now they had to deal with the hard part, figuring out how to live together.
1: They soon discovered that they had changed so much over the years, even as they were living under the same roof, that it was really like getting to know a new person. They carefully began forging a path that would accommodate both of them. They decided that they'd continue to live an ultra-Orthodox life at home, and give Yaakov the freedom to be secular when he was out of sight. Easier said than done.
5: It's so hard to try to connect these two worlds. They're very different. We started fighting a lot. He would go out with friends for a long time and come back very late. One day I come into the room on Shabbat, and he's playing with his phone. And at that point I said, Okay, you're not telling me everything, and we can't build anything together. Let's break it here.
1: Yaakov understood that Batya was serious, that she had made up her mind. He wrote her a long letter in which he told her how sorry he was that he had let her down and strayed from the path. He said that he appreciated her patience and openness and agreed with deep, deep sadness that it just couldn't work, that they were too far apart.
4: This is where most couples would call their lawyers and start epic battles about alimony payments. But Yakov and Batya, they, instead, hired a babysitter, bought a pair of plane tickets, and flew to Venice to hash out the terms of their breakup.
5: He said, we're not going to fight about money. I'll give you as much as I can because I'm a student. And I said, I'm not going to ask for too much, so you won't have to stop studying. We'll try raising our children together, although we're divorced. It was another point where I saw how How much I respect him, the way he thinks. He's not trying to get back at me. He's not trying to to kick everything he knows. He wants to do the best for me and the children. He's not going to try and uh, rip me off.
4: And as they were trying to figure out how to break up, Batya noticed that she was falling in love with Yaakov. With a new Yaakov. In Venice, far away from their disapproving community, everything suddenly seemed possible. So instead of finalizing the terms of their divorce, they decided to go back home to Israel and give it a go. This time for real.
1: They're still figuring out the details of this complicated relationship. The kids naturally have many
6: questions. They ask me why I'm not wearing tzitzit.
5: Why doesn't Abba daven?
6: Why I'm not washing my hands?
5: Why doesn't Abba learn Torah? For the time being,
4: they just brush them off.
5: I, I do tell them a lot of time our Abba is different than all the other Abbas. He's a little bit different. He learns in university. He's different.
1: They've left their ultra-Orthodox community and moved to the big city, to Jerusalem. There, at least this is how they feel, there are many ways of being religious. There are 50 Shades of Black.
4: Our story ends in Jerusalem, not far from the hotel lobby where it all began. It's late at night, we're in the living room of a small apartment. Five little kids are fast asleep down the hall.
1: A secular man is sitting next to a table. He's wearing worn out jeans and a blue t-shirt. His baby face is unshaven.
4: And right next to him is an ultra-orthodox woman in a long modest dress. Her head is covered with a tichel and she's smiling.
1: His name is Yakov.
4: Hers is Batya.
1: Throughout the interview, she helps him out with his broken English,
4: and they hold hands, caressing each other, as if they had just entered the chederichud on their wedding night. At the end of our conversation, as we were at the door, we asked Batya whether they would make it, if they would stay together. Her answer was
1: immediate.
5: I see 100%.
1: And that's our show. You can hear all our previous episodes on our site, IsraelStory.org, or by searching for Israel Story on iTunes and any of the other main podcast platforms. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. And if you'd like to sponsor episodes of Israel Story, which you really should, it's, it's easy. Just email us at sponsor at prx.org. All the original music in today's episode was composed and performed by an amazing trio of Israeli musicians, Ruth Danon, Noam Sadan, and Nili Fink. Their music also included covers of If I Were by Vashti Bunyan and Island of Faith by Ruth Dolores Weiss. Sella Weissblum, the man in the machine, mixed and edited this episode, which was recorded at Andrew Yeomansson's magical City of Progress studios in Miami. Thanks to our beloved Megan Whitman and everyone at the JCC Manhattan, our home away from home, for their ongoing support and for commissioning our live shows that we then take on the road and bring to audiences across the U.S. and Israel. A special thanks to the Lambert family, the Leon Lowenstein Foundation, Zabars, Joy Levitt, Amanda Crater, Matt Temkin, and Jeff Fontaine. To Jordana, David, Charlie, Zach, and Rosie Sandler-Monzano, to Debbie Swartz and all the folks at the New Hazlet Theater in Pittsburgh, to Pamela Levitt, Michelle Bucayi, in Nadir, Elliot Gold, Paula Winnig, Valentina Komenko, Rachel Shai, Miriam Fisher, Ike Fisher, Lourdes Suarez, and the Dave and Mary Alpert JCC in Miami. To Mark Perlin and Rhea David, Jennifer and Farrell Buczynski, Gail and Paul Fireman, Cindy Goodman-Lieb and Scott Lieb, and Aviva and Pinchas Rosenberg. And finally, Temoti Zada, Nomi Schneider, Roni Wagner, Brian Blum, Zoherit Nir Cohen, and Moshe Shenfeld. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Go to tabletmag.com slash IsraelStory to hear all our previous episodes. Our staff includes Yochai Metal, Shai Satran, Roy Gilron, Maya Kosover, and Rachel Fisher. Zev Levi, Aviva de Kornfeld, and Dima Pirovoshikov are our wonderful production interns. I'm Ishi Harman, and we'll be back very, very soon with a brand new Israel Story episode. So, till then, yalla bye. I
3: want to show